Welcome to the Diabetes What to Know podcast, where we talk to diabetes experts about how to live a long, healthy life with diabetes. We have a wonderful episode for you tonight with weight expert, Dr. Kim Colangelo, talking about real life strategies for good health. Dr. Colangelo, thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me. So you're a family physician, and one of the reasons I wanted to interview you on the show is because it seems like you really understand the practical challenges of trying to make changes to be healthier. And that's what we're talking about tonight, real life solutions to the everyday struggles of making changes for better health. So I'd like to start out by asking you, what are the biggest challenges you see your patients face when they're trying to make changes to be healthier? There's one main one that comes to mind, but I'll tell you the one first that people often think it is. People often think it's a problem with motivation, and that's certainly what studies have shown that many healthcare professionals think. Uh, But in reality, the biggest problem I find my patients face is time. Time to implement all of the changes we talk about, time to do things like meal planning, maybe tracking, um, time to fit in physical activity into their daily lives. People are busy nowadays. Um, A lot of people feel the time crunch. So I say time is one of the biggest barriers I find my patients face. So we're going to be talking a lot in this episode about lifestyle changes, and we know eating well and being active are really important for good health. But for some people, diet and exercise alone aren't enough to help them reach a healthier weight. How do you help your patients understand that reality? Most patients who come to me have tried everything. They say, Dr. Colangelo, I've tried all the diets. I've tried low-cal and low-carb and keto and tracking, and I've tried Mediterranean, and I've tried everything, and nothing works, and I don't understand. So I first start to tell them, this is not your fault. You have a medical condition. We talk about the basis of it, um, and then we go through why these things sometimes don't work for patients. So the first step I say is take away any blame or shame that they're feeling and then explain that there is a neurohormonal basis for why things don't always work. Um, So when we make changes to our lifestyle, we try to focus on changes that are able to be sustained long-term. And for some patients uh, that works and for some patients it doesn't. It's not because they're a bad person. That's not because it's a failure of any kind. This is just how their body is working. When we make changes, our body tries to fight sometimes and tries to get us back to doing what we were doing before. Our hunger hormones go up, our fullness hormones go down, and then we go back to what we were doing before. So I explain that to my patients to try and take away any of the fault that they're feeling and explain that this is very common and this is what often happens. So Dr. Colangelo, how can someone figure out if they are someone who needs medical treatments in addition to lifestyle change? I would say that it's all about their goals. So have they set their goals and do they know what reasonable goals are? And if they've set them, are they having trouble meeting them? Because we can say to a patient, oh, you could, you know, do X, Y, and Z, and they might find, may find that that's not enough, or they might, may find that that's too much. So I say to my patients, what goals have you set? Sometimes the goals patients have set are just unrealistic. And so in my experience, I can guide them towards, um, you know, this may, may be more achievable, even if it's just in the short term. So if you feel like you have set your goals, you know what they are, and you've met them, then you're not someone who's likely to need professional help. But if you haven't, then that's where an expert can come into play. Dr. Colangelo, we know that several studies suggest that ultra-processed foods can lead to weight gain, but that's a challenge because they are super convenient. Is trying to minimize ultra-processed foods something that you talk to your patients about? 
I would say 99.9% .9 of the time, yes. Uh, if it's a patient who's living with food insecurity or has difficulty accessing these foods, then I'm not going to have that conversation with them or I'll have it at a later time when it's more appropriate. For everybody else, yes. Some patients are already doing this, but many are really struggling. As you mentioned, they're, they're convenient. So that's why we turn to them. And they also hit a lot of those taste buds that people want. So the salt and the sugar and the fat. But we know that ultra processed foods are digested very differently in your body. So for example, let's say I take a patient who is counting calories. They'll look at me and they'll say, okay, here are my calories for the day. But today I felt hungry and yesterday I didn't. I don't understand. So then I'll talk to them and explain that the nutrient density of our food varies. If it's something ultra processed, your body's going to treat that a lot differently. So if you take 100 calories of almonds and 100 calories of cereal, your body's not going to treat those as equivalent. So ultra processed foods are something I really encourage my patients to limit within the confines of the lifestyle that they're, that they're able to lead. So any tips on how we might begin that process of limiting them? I know you spoke to how challenging it can be. Mm -hmm. uh, so first I go through with my patients a lot about what their current lifestyle is, because the problem isn't that they don't want to eat these foods. Most of the time it's that they're convenient and they're easy. So I talk to them, what are the barriers? Time is a big one. So I have patients explain to me, okay, where does your time go? Tell me about a typical day. So a lot of my patients are busy working parents or have some other thing that takes up a lot of their time. So we'll go through how can we find time in your day? And so it might be little things. So for example, if patients are stopping at a fast food restaurant to buy those energy dense salads that look really healthy, then we'll talk about, okay, here's a way that you could get those very similar things at the grocery store that are going to put together a very similar meal, but without a bunch of the added energy dense foods from a takeout restaurant. So a lot of it involves planning ahead. I'm a big fan of meal planning. So it can be high tech. There's apps. There's lots of good apps like Paprika is a really common one. There's making a spreadsheet. So some of my mom friends will make a four week spreadsheet and they rotate their meals on a four week schedule so that they always have something that's not ultra processed ready to go. Personally, I am very low tech. Mine is a piece of paper. It is literally a piece of scrap paper where I've looked through, don't laugh, recipe books, um, because I still own those, and I've written down my meal plan for the week. And I have some on the computer and some people have sent to me, but it's really what, it, what will work for you and your family. And, and so meal planning that is very helpful because if we don't know what to eat, then we're going to be more tempted to turn towards the ultra processed foods. All right, we're going to dig into your meal planning process a little bit more here because, I, you know, I think this is really where the rubber meets the road and it's so easy at five o'clock if we don't have a plan to kind of default to mm -hmm. what's easy. So are you doing this one week at a time? Are you making the list on Sunday, kind of what you're thinking about, grocery shopping for that, and then cooking it night by night? Is that kind of your approach? Sort of. So I have three little people I'm responsible for. So after they're in bed, typically, uh, I will have a look through the fridge and the freezer and see what's there, what might be going bad, what needs to be used up right away. Then I'll get a piece of paper and I'll just write out the days of the week. So I do my grocery shopping Thursdays. So I'll write out the days of the week and then I'll write out a plan. I also have my calendar next to me 
because I need to look for trouble spots. So if my husband and I are both working late, that's not going to be a night that I'm going to have time to cook a fancier meal. So I look for trouble spots. I look for how can I manage those trouble shops, trouble spots. And some of those involve batch cooking. So people may have heard of batch cooking. So I don't make one lasagna. I make three or four. One is for dinner. The next one is for lunches the next day. And the next one goes in the freezer. So that's going to happen on the day that I have time. I make those some things in the freezer so that when we have that night with two parents with a meeting and we need something quick to eat, we've got something from the freezer. So my meal planning is very low tech. I pull out my recipe books. I have my favorite recipes flagged. I say, these are the easy things. It gets written down. I base my grocery shopping list off of it. I love to hear someone else who's a fan of the freezer because I do the exact same thing. When I make soup, I double the recipe. I put some of it in the freezer. And then for those busy nights, it's just an easy way to pull something from the freezer. And it's like someone's there taking care of you. <laughs> so let's talk about what you called the mom conundrum. You said you have three little ones. And, and the mom conundrum is the challenge of cooking healthy foods for more than one person. How do you help people solve this challenge? Uh, so this may vary a little bit by family, depending on ages and stages of their children. I am a big fan of having a goal of three dishes per meal, but don't panic. One of those dishes might be frozen peas that I've microwaved with water. And there are some nights where that's what one of my children chooses to eat. So we know that putting a lot of pressure on children to eat certain foods can make them rebel or make them hesitant to try it. So I take a very low pressure approach. On my meal plan, I'll have something that is going to be more protein filled and help everyone stay full. I'll have something that's more carby or more fun for the kids. And then I'll have something that's a different thing. It might be new, it might be old, just one other thing that's quick and super easy. That's my goal. We don't achieve that every night. There are nights where dinner might be, like I said, one dish from the freezer. Um, but every night I can count on my kids to eat something that I've put on the table. And so I like to just offer the choices. And so there'll be nights where I won't eat one of the dishes, nights where they won't eat one of the dishes. And then we just try to take all of the pressure off of eating for the family of five. So I'm so curious about this. We, we rarely talk about, you know, trying to help kids eat healthier. It sounds like you take a very low pressure approach and kind of trust that you're making it available and they're going to come to it as they can. Exactly. That's called the division of responsibility. And basically the, the premise of it is that it's my job to prepare food for them. It's my job to serve it, put it in front of them. And it's their job to decide if they're going to eat how much they're going to eat. And so that's the that's the approach we've taken in my house. And sometimes, you know, one child is just not having it that night. And so I have a list of things that I can fall back on if I need to. So some examples might be, you don't have to eat dinner tonight, the next meal is breakfast tomorrow. Just so they know when what those expectations are. Um, there's a, a dietitian here in Winnipeg that I've taken a few off of her Instagram. So another one is, is there a condiment you can add to make this tasty? That one has worked for some of for some of my children some of the time. So we try to just give them some responsibility in their food choices so that we're not putting pressure on them to eat certain things. 
when they're very young, I will encourage them to try something because it often takes children many tries before they develop a taste for something. So there's some encouragement of, oh, this is a new food. Do you want to give this a try? But then it really is up to them if they decide to consume it. So last question about your kids and how you think about food. How do you handle ultra processed foods when it comes to your kids? Do you, do you set limits? Is it a once in a while treat? How do you negotiate that? That's a great question. That's a question I've had from quite a few of my patients as well. So the approach I like to take is a very non-judgmental, non-assigning value to a food. So we talk about how there are foods that give us energy. There are foods that give us certain nutrients. So many people know about um, certain vitamins that will cause certain things in their body that are great. We know carrots make us have great vision. So we try to link foods to what it does in our body. That way it takes away the stigma against any of those foods. And so I'll talk to my kids and say, this ultra processed food might taste really yummy in your mouth, but we know that if you eat a lot of it, you're likely to get a tummy ache, or it's not likely to keep you full all night, or some of those sticky foods might stick to our teeth and make us prone to cavities. So I like to talk about the effect it has on our body. And then we talk about, these are sometimes foods, they're foods we eat sometimes, and they're foods that we don't eat all the time because it's not great for our bodies to eat certain foods all of the time. So I do set limits on them. We try to make make some of the ultra processed foods a sometimes food that are shared as a family because it's fun to try new things and to have things that we, we consider a treat every now and then. They're not an always food though. So if I offer my child a piece of cake, the child eats it, they may ask for a second, I'll say, okay, how are you feeling right now? And sometimes they'll, they'll take a second piece and we encourage them that if you start to feel like you're full, you can put that food in the fridge and you can save it for another time. If we're severely restrictive and take an approach of never allowing these foods, then as we know, for a lot of children, that will make them rebel. We run into some problematic behaviors like hiding foods or overvaluing those ultra-processed foods. So I talk to my children that everything can have a time and a place, and how it affects their body determines how much of that we're going to eat. Oh, what a great philosophy. All right, let's talk about the role of physical activity when it comes to weight loss. Is exercise the silver bullet that we've been led to believe that it is? This is something that comes up at almost all of my intake visits with my new patients is one of the things I'll hear from them is I committed, I went to the gym, I went hours a week and I didn't lose a single pound. Can you believe that? And I'm usually saying they're going, yep, yes I can. And then I explain why. Physical activity is amazing for our bodies. It helps us sleep. It helps reduce anxiety and improves mental health. It's good for our heart. It has so many benefits but it is not a great tool for weight management. So it's still good for you and I encourage my patients to do it and we go over the physical activity guidelines, 150 minutes a week of moderate activity when they're um, trying to maintain their best weight, but it's not a strategy for weight loss. So I don't want to discourage anyone from doing physical activity, but I want to reassure them that I believe them. I believe that they did this and I believe that it didn't go the way they thought it was going to go. So are there certain types of exercise that you recommend for your patients just for good health? No, <laughs> I recommend whatever they will do. 
So I'm not usually a team sport person. I'm not a go to the gym person. I'm not a workout at home person. I'm a fitness class person. That's the, that's the main activity I like to do. And when I have three little ones, that doesn't happen that often. So then I incorporate it with my children. So we might be going to the park and we might be playing basketball. I am horrendous at basketball. I really don't know that I've ever actually scored a basket, but that is what I have the time to do. And it's fun when I do it with my kids. So I don't recommend any particular exercise other than what they enjoy doing, what they can stick with and what's reasonable for them to work into their schedule. Dr. Colangelo, is cognitive behavioral therapy something you suggest your patients explore? For the vast majority of patients, yes. So in the first few visits, we're usually focusing more on medical conditions, making sure everything is managed appropriately, investigations like blood work. Usually it comes up around the second or third visit that if we're going to be making lifestyle changes, which most patients are wanting to make, we have to get into the right mindset of that and we have to be prepared to troubleshoot things. So many patients have cognitive distortions that they're dealing with. And it might be things like discounting the positive so they're not able to cheer themselves on when they've had a big win, a success. Let's say someone's incorporated physical activity, but they're not hitting the 150 minutes a week. They might be super disappointed. So we work on cognitive distortions that people might be experiencing. And then the behavioral aspect of it is how does that manifest? So for example, if they're discounting the positive, then that may manifest as a behavior that doesn't allow them to continue to try their best. They may say, I failed, I haven't done this, you know, I haven't succeeded fully, so then I'm going to stop. So I feel like I see a lot of cognitive distortions in my patients. And so we work on behavioral therapy with them to overcome those distortions. And it's not a quick fix. These are usually longer appointments that get booked um, often monthly. And it takes a little while to talk to them and find out what are the cognitive distortions that they're experiencing and then troubleshoot those. So for our folks watching at home who maybe aren't as familiar with CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, talk a little bit about how it can help with weight management. So cognitive behavioral therapy can be very helpful to patients and I usually introduce it within the first couple of visits. When we're trying to achieve our lifestyle goals, which is what most of our patients are trying to do, there are often barriers that come into their mind and these are called cognitive distortions. There are things in their mind that aren't quite how they seem and aren't how other people would see what's going on. So for example, discounting the positive is a good one. So they may have had a great win. They may have been very successful in implementing a change, but if they didn't do it 100%, then they discount that and they say, I, I didn't achieve my goal. And then the behavior might be that they that they stop trying or that they go back to what they were doing before because they haven't done it 100% perfect. So those are things that we talk to our patients about. And whenever someone's struggling, or even before they're struggling, if they have the time to put into cognitive behavioral therapy, then we do that with them to figure out what are the barriers that are going to get in my way and how can we how can we reframe those into a way that is more conducive to them meeting their goals. Oh, I love that. So is emotional eating something that's a challenge for your patients? That's so tricky to answer. Emotional eating is not a, it's not a diagnostic term. It means we eat with emotion and that's a normal thing to do much of the time. So for example, if we're going for a holiday meal with our family, we're going to have emotions when we eat that meal. You know, 
who hasn't eaten something from their childhood and have just a rush of emotion about it and think, oh, this is something that I ate as a kid. So emotional eating is a very common thing. It's not problematic for everyone though. So for some patients it is, for some patients their emotional eating is, for example, every time they get stressed, then they turn to certain kinds of food. So that could be an emotional eating that is problematic, in which case we would explore that more and often with cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, what about binge eating disorder? Can you tell us a little bit about what it is and how someone can figure out if that's what they're experiencing? So binge eating disorder is a recognized medical condition where people eat an abnormally large amount of food in a set window of time. It's usually one to two hours and there's some sort of associated loss of control feeling. So it has to be both of those to be classified as binge eating disorder. So eating an abnormally large amount of food in a set window of time with a loss of control feeling. There also has to be other criteria that are met in addition to those first two. People would eat when they're not hungry. They would eat until they're overfull. They might eat quicker than usual. They might eat alone because they're embarrassed about how much they're eating. And after they have an episode of binge eating, they might feel guilty or bad about themselves. People have to have three of those five. This also has to be recurrent. So going to a buffet and meeting the rest of the criteria that's not binge eating disorder. That would be considered normal behavior to happen occasionally in that setting. It has to be recurrent. We're talking about weekly, and then it has to cause them distress. In order for something to be considered a mental health diagnosis, which binge eating disorder is, it has to cause distress to that person. If it's not causing you a problem, it's not a disorder. So if someone watching at home feels like, hey, this sounds like what I'm experiencing, what would you recommend that they do? I would say the first step is you can talk to your physician about it, recognizing that not all physicians are going to be knowledgeable in binge eating disorder. It only recently became included in the psychiatric manual as its own condition. So not all physicians will be familiar with it, but many are, and many can talk to you about treatment options. There are several treatment options for binge eating disorder. And the good news is it's actually one of the more treatable conditions that we see. So patients shouldn't think that, oh, now I've been diagnosed with this and there's no hope. There actually is quite good treatments for it. So are there any resources like websites or books that have been helpful for your patients? I do have a book I recommend to my patients. It's called Overcoming Binge Eating, and it's by Dr. Christopher Fairburn. It's actually quite good. It has a step-by-step -step program, and this is the one I use in my clinic. So patients can read the book, and then they can actually go through the program on their own at home. So if they don't have the time to attend doctor's appointments, or maybe that's not the right setting for them, then they can actually work through this program on their own. There's also lots of support groups. Um, patients can go, and honestly, if you go on the National Eating Disorders website, then there are resources on binge eating disorder. I would say there's not going to be as many as some of the other eating disorders because, again, it hasn't been known um, to be its own recognized disorder for quite as long. There is a little bit of controversy in binge eating disorder as to whether or not it's classified as an addiction. So sometimes patients will want to, whenever they're going and looking at things like support groups or websites, have a look at what kind of focus it takes and how it treats this. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy is the number one recommended treatment for it to start with. So that's a good place that patients can start. And many counselors and psychologists can help with this, with the initial treatments of it as well.
So Dr. Colangelo, you're a family physician, which means you're focused on the overall health of your patients. How have you seen weight loss, even if someone is only losing 10 to 15 pounds, result in better health for your patients? Yeah. So usually I talk to my patients and at the very first appointment and say, how is your weight currently affecting your health? And we go through the list. So for some patients that might be heartburn, it might be knee or hip pain. It might be that they get rashes. So there's a wide variety of ways that their weight can affect their life. And then once we start to see some changes to their weight, then we start to see a lot of those things diminish. And so we have scales that look at, okay, once a patient has lost three to 5%, these are the changes that have happened in their body. For example, blood sugar has gone down, blood pressure has gone down, liver enzymes are starting to normalize. So we see some of those things that can happen. And for some patients, they happen even before they lose weight. Even at the very beginning, they start to actually feel, for example, less heartburn. So when my patients are making lifestyle changes, we focus on how does that feel on your body because that's what's going to keep them motivated to keep making those changes and we look back to okay what did you tell me at your first appointment well these are the ways your weight was impacting your health okay well are you still experiencing those things and sometimes sometimes patients have lost very little weight or it's changed and they've already started to see those changes just from their lifestyle changes that has to be so exciting and so motivating too yeah exactly So last question for me, what is the number one thing you wish everyone knew about weight loss? I wish people knew that they don't have to do this alone, that there are a whole team of experts like myself and like other healthcare professionals that want to talk to you about all of the new knowledge that we have in weight management and that you don't have to do this alone. This is not something you cause to yourself. It's not your fault. It's not because you're a bad person. This is a medical condition and this is something that healthcare professionals can help you with. Oh, so true. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. This has been such a practical and really inspiring conversation. Thanks so much for having me. We will be back with a new episode in a few weeks. Until then, please stay safe and take good care. Good night.